I'm Chris Denson, and this is Uncommon Good, a custom podcast from Fastco Works and Facebook. In this series, we'll hear from industry leaders who combine purpose with innovative thinking to give back to their local or global community. Today's episode, Leveling the Hiring Field, How Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Programs Are Turning Promises into Practices. And joining me today for this conversation is Rosanna Deruthi, Vice President of Global Diversity, Inclusion, and Belonging at LinkedIn. Hello, Rosanna. Hello there, Chris. Awesome to spend time with you. Yeah, thank you for joining us. This is great. A great way to start the year, considering so much is going on. It's nice to have an opportunity to have this conversation with you. I agree. I 100% agree. One of the things that kind of struck me as interesting about you among uh, dozens of them is the phrase, or the sorry, the word belonging in your title. We've heard about diversity. We've heard about inclusion. Tell us a little bit about what belonging means and how that informs what you do on a day-to-day basis. You know, belonging is what attracted me to this role. You know, I think we've all, as you mentioned, heard about diversity and inclusion, but what is it like to really feel like we belong? That sense of not only being ourselves and being at ease, but feeling like we own the space, feeling like it responds to us as well. And I equate it with, you know, the old American ritual of the high school prom. After you've gone through the anxiety of whether you're gonna ask the person you wanna go to the dance with to join you, or you're gonna get asked by the person you want to ask you to the dance, then you've gotta worry about what you wear and you worry about what it's gonna take when you get there. Like, are they gonna be playing my music? Will I be able to dance to it? Belonging is walking into a space powerfully. They play your music, you're on the dance floor and everyone else is dancing with you. And what's really powerful I find about belonging is that it's not something we can create for ourselves. It's something that's created for us in partnership with others. It's just a powerful thing to be who you are and to have that generate a new level, not only of comfort, but productivity, because you don't have to tie up the emotional real estate on, am I good enough? Am I doing this right? Do people get me? You can just be. Yeah, I, I love that there's a hyper focus on the individual, right? A lot of a lot of efforts, and rightfully so, focus on the infrastructure and the organization and leadership. But this is like, who are you as an individual, and how can we best honor that? And when you think about diversity and inclusion, like we're all different, let alone like the marginalized and those other of us who may not get the invitation often. But I'm curious is how you also work with those candidates, new hires, individuals within the organization to truly understand understand what their own sort of hurdles might be. What is that like? Is it a listening tour? Is that a survey? Is that just kind of like keeping an open door? Like, or is it all three? I don't know. I think it's a little bit of all of the above. So, you know, as an organization, we want to know not only what our employees are experiencing, but how they experience the environment. And so we have a regular quarterly cadence around questions that we ask to understand how our employees experience belonging, to understand how they feel they can be most productive in the environment and whether they're getting the support they need to be productive in the environment. So that's one avenue, certainly. There's the interpersonal dynamic as well, which is really about working with managers who care about their employees. And so when things happen in the world, you know, does my manager ask me how I'm doing? Or is there a perception that everything's okay and then we don't discuss things that might be heavy on my heart? And then I think the third way is creating community. You know, as human beings, we come from experiences and backgrounds, but we come from people and creating communities where others are not only a reflection of ourselves, but we can talk about the things that matter to us and we feel safe to ask the questions that we might have. 
and we're surrounded by people with a kind of cultural humility to want to understand different perspectives becomes, I think, really consequential to how you build this environment where belonging exists. Speaking of all those things cumulatively, I will read a statement that I found in direct relation to what you do. LinkedIn's vision is to create economic opportunities for the entire global workforce. In my eyes on this, it's like that's a wildly ambitious goal. How do you take a goal like that and break it down into bite-sized chunks and like daily actions? You know, creating economic opportunity for every member of the global workforce really requires a deep level of compassion and caring to understand what gets in the way of that opportunity. From a product standpoint, it's work that we're doing to better understand and equip our products to help people be seen, to be noticed by employers who are hiring, to have access to the learning, to build the skills they need for the new opportunities that are available, and to connect to people who can help open the doors. And closing that network gap is an important part of the work we're doing. Internally, we're doing it very similarly understanding that we need to equip our managers with the kind of inclusive leadership skills that really allow them to help guide talent in the workforce. That enables our employees to be important contributors to understanding what's needed for our members to be able to access these opportunities. What kind of course content should we be enabling through authors so that members can be more productive and more successful? Yeah, that's great. Just, I don't know, I was thinking about the idea that change is a process that is not for the impatient. And I think about this culture of immediacy. I reflect on things like Oscar so white, right? And, you know, there was a lot of uprising and and people voicing their opinions, but also realizing like, look, it takes five to 10 years to make a, a film. So filling the pipeline takes a lot longer than our expected culture of immediacy. How do you balance that idea of expectation with day-to-day action that may take a little bit longer than perceptually we understand? Yeah, there's a a certain level of resilience and persistence you have to operate with in equal measure. You know, the resilience to recognize that every individual is going to get this when they get this, and people are at different points in this journey, and it's a personal journey. This isn't something that the diversity person can take care of. There is a specialization in my work, but this is a shared accountability that leaders engage in. And the reality is we're fighting a little bit of a challenge in that most people aren't taught this in school. You know, we have a work environment that consists of people who come from not only different backgrounds, different lived experiences, and the bias that society has created over centuries upon centuries is at play in the systems that have been built for people to work, systems of hiring, systems of performance, how we evaluate talent. All of that has its own kind of built-in code. And if you look past it, you don't even realize it's there. So there's a real need to be intentional in understanding what assumptions have we built into our systems that don't work universally for everyone. And that's where we have to start paying attention and thinking about how do we build systems that work for everyone and not give preferential treatment to some groups or not become easier for some groups to manage because that's how they've always operated versus understanding how do we share the access, share the abilities 
build systems that are inclusive in a holistic manner. I, I think, you know, in, in many cases, we still have to pitch diversity yeah. <laughs> and go, hey, here, you know, it's, it's really valuable if you did this. For those who might miss the value from the onset, how do you go about breaking it down to present a compelling story as to why this should be part of an operational practice? What we see is that companies that have diverse leadership teams prove to be more profitable. They prove to be more productive. People want to work in those companies far more than they want to work in companies where they don't see individuals like themselves in roles of leadership. Customers want to be able to experience products that meet their needs. And in doing so, if you don't understand that customer, if you don't understand dynamics that include race, ethnicity, gender, regional adaptations and, and socialization, invariably, you can't sell your product. You can't connect to that customer. So diversity is what makes companies more productive, more successful. It's not creating something that's unwanted. In fact, it's creating something that's missing that would help companies be even more successful in creating customer loyalty, customer trust, employee loyalty and trust, overall productivity and revenue, which is what I think most companies are driven by and seeking to create. We'll be back after a short break. Hi, I'm Brandon Lee Myers, Technology Industry Manager at Facebook. It's no secret that 2020 was a challenging year for people and businesses around the world. But in the midst of those challenging and uncertain times, some organizations uncovered unique opportunities to help their customers survive and thrive despite the odds. You're listening to Uncommon Good, a podcast sponsored by Facebook, highlighting voices from the tech industry who are helping to keep communities together in this unprecedented age of social distancing. If you'd like to learn more about how Facebook can help you build community and grow your business, visit us at facebook.com slash business. Now, there's a lot of companies who have done a great job of taking like massive action toward this goal. And there's others where you hear these anecdotes of like lip service or, oh, we sent out an email to our community or, you know, we're started, they've done some little bit of effort. And I almost think of it like a kid eating broccoli. Here, just, just eat a little bit of it. It's good for you. Does every action, no matter how little, matter? Because I think, in my opinion, it kind of moves the needle along. It may not be the depth of motion that we want. But in your opinion, are the smaller actions still as valuable? Or where where are we with that? Do you want me to be real with this, Chris? Be extremely real. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think think organizations don't want to waste time. So really important to consider actions matter. But if it's only being done as an action, and it's not really tied to the strategy the organization has, it's not going to be sustainable. So we have to ask ourselves, are we doing this out of some sense of political correctness? Are we doing it because we really are committed to leveling up the talent in our organization, really having our employees experience the the authenticity of what it is to be themselves when they walk into the environment and know that they have a real shot to succeed? The little actions for the moment will gain applause, but over time, it's not going to change the dynamic. It's not going to change representation. It won't have an impact, a sustainable impact on the experience that their employees and their customers may have. I hope for the day when your job is obsolete. I don't know how or when we'll get there, but you know, when I look at you and your profile and your resume, you've been doing this for a long time. I sure have. Um, 
<laughs> so, so, and thank you for fighting the good fight. But over the years, I mean, you know, from the time you started doing this, what types of actual progress have you seen? I know it's been a hot topic, you know, since 2020 for a number of reasons, but this has been a topic area of interest of yours professionally for, you know, a couple of decades now. So what kind of actual progress have you seen made? So there have been numerous changes in the time that I've been in this space and, and companies have made some of those adaptations, there's no doubt whether it was based on employee demand, customer expectation, or even legislative change. So there has been progress. But certainly, you also begin to see where there are people who still are a little bit oblivious to this. If companies aren't finding diverse talent, I would assert they're not doing enough to create access to those opportunities. They're not opening the doors. I would even say the systems by which we select talent have been designed to invite people in who remind us of ourselves and to hold people out that we're not quite familiar with. So there's a, a real rewrite of the operating system that's required. And a lot like code in the world of technology, it's like if it's programmed into the system, if it's coded, that's how it operates. And sometimes you have to rewrite the code. And I would say the market now has an expectation that if you're not doing something about this, there's really something wrong with you as a company. And there's an expectation that great talent has that companies that are committed to this are the companies who are going to win and survive. Those who aren't are going to have a hard time in the marketplace in the future. You, you touched on it halfway through your response, this idea of just habits, the habits we're in. And you gave a talk, which I highly recommend people look you up on the YouTubes of the world. But you gave this talk about how many of us don't search beyond the first three pages, you know, when you're doing looking for a candidate. And you also ended that phrase with that's often where the gold is. And so, you know, there's this culture of immediacy. We're slightly lazy and we might not get to that fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth page. How do you encourage people to go a little bit deeper and further just on the search alone, let alone the, the other parts of the puzzle? I spent a lot of years in recruiting, so I'm, I'm a recovering talent acquisition leader myself. And, you know, the lazy search is one where you're looking for the round peg for the round hole. It's like, how do I hire someone who resembles the last person that got hired for this role? The difference in game changing element of diversity is going to come from the leader who understands how to complement those capabilities and skills so that the team is greater than the sum of its parts. It benefits from that diversity. So that means as a recruiter, you've got to get outside your comfort zone. First of all, if your networks don't include people who are different, that should be the first sign. If the last four or five people you hired came from the same schools, came with the same background, came from the same companies, then you're probably coasting in your job and not really creating a lot of value. Look for someone who brings something different to the equation. Because the skills are the skills, but that knowledge, that experience, that ability that an individual can contribute can be so complementary and it allows others to learn from them. Let's talk about candidates for a second or the individuals that you serve, whether they're you know longtime employees or new to the fray. What kind of tools, insights, resources do you recommend for me if I'm looking for an opportunity? What should I be doing? Right, Because I think we, we talk a lot about what companies should be doing. What should the candidates be doing? First thing, take a look at your LinkedIn network and see if you know anyone who works at the company and get the real deal. What's the scoop? What's that company up to? Second thing is think about your skills and what you're creating for yourself and what you want your future to look like. And bring those questions to the interview. All too frequently, companies focus on culture fit. 
you know, as human beings, we want to fit the environment too. So we're looking to see if we fit in that environment. But companies need to look for culture add. And we as human beings need to understand, is this environment going to add something to me? Am I going to learn something new? Am I going to build new skills? Am I going to have the kind of mentoring and sponsorship in this environment to realize my aspirations? And I think we all have to reinvent ourselves, creating new skills, creating new abilities, exploring new things, bringing a curiosity about what's next and not just what we've done. The technology changes, the people change, the product's going to change, the world changes. So how are we keeping up with that? And I think that's important for any of us as we prepare to look at a company to make a move, or even as we think about our careers internally and how do we continue growing in the environment we're in. Beautifully stated. It kind of takes me back to the psychological quotient for for a second. I've had that conversation with a mentor of mine about like how sometimes growing up in black families is like you don't have a lot of means. So you don't ask for a lot of what you might deserve or want. I think going into a job environment or being in one and you go like, I do want this, but there's a subconscious thing that's going on where I may not be as aggressive toward that goal as I could be. Does that come up in your work or in the folks that you deal with? Totally. And I grew up the same way. You know, the talk track and the things that I was brainwashed around are you're smart. You can figure it out yourself. Never let them see you sweat. No one needs to know about your business. That's really good in the beginning. But as you grow, you know, A, being vulnerable, letting people get to know you. You're not furniture. And if all they know is your work, you kind of become like the furniture in the environment. They need to know who you are as a person and connect to you. Second, if you don't let people contribute to you, invariably, it's going to be really hard for you to be an effective leader because no leader does it alone. And then lastly, you got to keep learning. And that means you've got to have the kind of personal humility to know that you can learn from someone else and be willing to enter a space. And when you don't know, say, gosh, I don't know. Could you share with me more about that? The power of this work around inclusion, it isn't so much that we're not invited in, it's that we lock ourselves in. We don't allow people to invite us in and we don't invite them in because we're afraid to reveal our weaknesses. And we all have weaknesses. That's like super obvious. But if we delude ourselves into believing that we can actually cover that up, we're going to fail and we're going to fail to realize our full potential, not because someone has let us down because we let ourselves down. Well stated. Last but not least, you know, I was thinking about this idea, just like sometimes our timelines are deferred, whether you're an organization making strides in this or you're an individual making your own strides in your own career, despite whatever inspiration, motivation or previous success we might have had. But specifically with you, you were a Harvard student at 16 and you had to put that on pause due to some homelessness. Walk us through that. And more specifically, what did that teach you about patience and how does that affect the perspective of your work? You know, when I was 16, I had all sorts of dreams and aspirations. And due to family circumstances, I ended up having to take a leave, which meant I became a Harvard dropout. And, you know, fortunately, I'm in good company because, you know, Mark Zuckerberg, last time I saw, I didn't get his degree from Harvard or Bill Gates for that matter. So what I've learned is you are never your circumstances. And I think in life, that's the first stop we experience. We think we can only be happy when we have, you know, this dream that's in our head. But in reality, circumstances change, circumstances pass, and circumstances don't have to define you. And I think I was just, I was blessed with an amazing mom who always believed in me, with amazing friends who were my family at a time when 
when that was a real challenge. Like when you're 17 years old and you're trying to figure out what's next and where your next meal is going to come from, it can be really scary. But I never saw that as my forever. And I think if we can recognize just that, a dream may get deferred, but that dream will not be denied. We are all capable of dreaming and creating powerful outcomes. We're not our circumstances. We are magical possibilities. And when we lean into that, what we'll see is the universe actually surrounds us with opportunities to test what we're really about, keep coming at it from different angles and in different ways. And when we emerge, we emerge big and we actually emerge powerful enough to make a difference in the world. And that's what I hope I've been able to do along the way. And certainly, you know, this gig isn't up. I got a lot of work to do, but I hope to continue making a difference. Uncommon good indeed. Thank you so much for sharing your insights and wisdom with us today. This has been awesome. Hey, awesome meeting you, Chris. Looking forward to connecting with you again. That's all for this episode of Uncommon Good. Uncommon Good is produced by Fast Co. Works in partnership with Facebook. I'm Chris Denson. Our producer is Avery Miles.